right. Uh, this, is, this is a bit of a tough passage. Uh, but I hope that you will understand as we walk through this passage this morning that although the Bible has a fair bit to say about money, the New Testament especially has a lot to say about money, if you're focused on money only this morning, then you're missing the point. You see, Jesus speaks to this young man directly regarding his issue. That doesn't mean that it's yours. So this morning, you're not off the hook, and neither am I, okay? So let's start and let's uh, walk our way through this passage. Uh, notice uh, that this question comes, this young man comes to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? And Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. Notice that repetition of good, 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 good. Repetition. We've talked about this before. You need to take note if there's this repetition. This young man obviously thinks that there's something lacking in his life. He needs to perform something more, some righteous deed, so that he can be assured of eternal life. And so he says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get or have eternal life? And there you go. What good thing do I need to do to get or to have eternal life? And Jesus responds by changing the thought pattern. He doesn't say, do this so that you can get or have. He says, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. So he's not talking about getting or having, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Jesus takes this young man back to obeying the law as an expression of belief in the truly good God. The good God has written his good will for his people. And, and this passage connects to the preceding discussion of entering the kingdom of heaven as a child in chapter 18. We talked about that. And the rich young man should display obedience to the law as a source of all that is good. This is not to, to earn eternal life, and that's where we often end up. We want to earn eternal life. Rather, we are to humbly obey the law with childlike faith in God's goodness. When he asks, what must I do? He's in the driver's seat. He's in the driver's seat. He wants to be able to control the process and the outcome, and his preoccupation seems to be with having or achieving, or performance. I know none of us here are plagued with that, right? It's never been our issue. Eternal life is more than a commodity to be gained or had. You can't purchase it or merit it. You can't. Stop trying. Jesus changes the focus of the verb here from possession, have, to journey, enter. It's such an amazing way of sidestepping a question and answering and pulling you in directions you weren't really wanting to go. And this young man with unblinking confidence declares that he has kept all of the commandments. And he doesn't really mean only the commands, commandments that Jesus cites. He understands that these commandments that Jesus refers to actually are representative of the entire law. All of it. 
And his obedience to the law was complete. Reminds us of somebody else in scripture, Paul, Pharisee. He said too, he had kept the whole law. He had managed to keep the law. But of course, obedience to the law doesn't satisfy him. He still feels like there's something lacking. And so he says, what do I still lack? What am I still missing? I just don't feel like I'm there. And this is probably the place where he needs to be. And I hope you and I are there occasionally as well, where we recognize that our efforts just are going to fall short. They won't be enough. They won't get us there. And so Jesus challenges him. He could have challenged him further to find out where he had lacked some obedience that could be found and corrected. But the issue is not one of external performance. The Pharisees, of course, prided themselves on their righteousness, having accomplished that through obeying the law. And each of us, in turn, when we rely on personal legalistic compliance instead of faith in God's grace and goodness, we join them in our own self-righteousness. Let me say that again. Each of us, when we rely on our own personal legalistic compliance instead of faith in God's grace and goodness, we join the Pharisees in our own self-righteousness. That's a bit of a heavy indictment. Instead, in our story, Jesus takes this young man to the inner place where his values are formed, his heart. And he challenges him to see his most cherished value, the ruling God of his life. Without God ruling him, he'll continue to lack. He'll continue to lack. So the question, and I'm going to come back to it, is who or what is sitting on the throne in your heart? Hmm? Who or what is sitting on the throne in your heart? That's, that's, I could quit right now. That's really the point of this passage. That's the point of this sermon. That's the point of this morning's discussion. Who or what is sitting on the throne of your heart? And, and you can brush the riches aside, you can brush a lot of other things aside, but the question still remains, who or what is sitting on the throne of your heart? Well, the recipe that Jesus gives this young man, verse 21 and 22, is to be perfect. And, and for him, for this young man, the recipe was, sell your possessions, give to the poor, come and follow me. Now, you're, you're making a, a, a mistake and you're, you're making a sweeping application that the text doesn't ask you to make if you say that all of us should sell everything that we have and give it to the poor. Again, Jesus is speaking to a young man who happens to have his possessions on the throne of his heart and he identifies the heart issue. He identifies it. He calls him to address the central lack in his life, the central issue of his heart. His wealth had become the means to personal identity, power, purpose, and meaning in his life. It had, in a real sense, become his God. And Jesus calls him to exchange this God for the true, one true God. He will continue to lack until he becomes like a child. Powerless, defenseless, and needing his heavenly father. 
And as we read, or as Ethan read in our text this morning, the response of this young man is one of the truly heartbreaking verses in Scripture. It says, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. I'm not sure, I don't want to read into the text, but I think the young man knew that Jesus had correctly pinpointed what was lacking in his life. He knew what issues were at stake. His many possessions had captivated his heart, and he could not exchange this God for Jesus. So he goes away with great distress, knowing that his decision has eternal consequences. He likely knew all along what he was lacking for eternal life, and when he is offered it by Jesus, he rejects the invitation. You see, Jesus points to the inner problem, the wealth that is the ruling force of his life. By exchanging his wealth for Jesus as his Lord, he would indeed become Jesus' disciple, entering the kingdom of heaven and finding eternal life. I read a quote that I thought was funny. Money is a tool, but it tends to have a sticky handle. I guess you didn't find that funny. A lot of things are good in and of themselves, but if they end up sitting there, they become a problem. This man illustrates a basic principle of life, that wealth can be a heady intoxicant because it provides counterfeits that fool a person into thinking that they do not need God. I, I suspect that, in part, this is somewhat of a Western problem because we're all actually fairly wealthy. We all can put food on the table. We all have clothes on our back and a roof over our heads. And in many ways, we are well off. And, and when that means that I now think that I can, you know, like the, the rich fool who said he's going to tear down his barns and build bigger ones, and God said, you know what, you, you made a bit of a mistake here, my paraphrase. You and I can't control, in fact, actually, I need God's help to take the next breath and the next one. I have no guarantees on my life, on the time that he has given me. We need to be like a child. A child has no power, no defense, no personal resources to accomplish what he wants in life. To become like a child is to receive God into our life, who will then supply what is lacking. The rich young ruler's wealth prevented him from entering the kingdom. And as I think you have understood from what I've said this morning, this passage does not suggest that wealth is wrong. Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Christ, and he was a rich man. But it does suggest that there is something about wealth that can choke off the effectiveness of the gospel and keep us from entering the kingdom. So the treasure of our lives is the point here. For the young man in our story, that treasure was his personal possessions. For some of us, it can be something entirely different that takes place of God in our lives. Our faith journey includes exchanging the treasures of our life for the treasure of heaven. Jesus knew full well the controlling issue of the rich man's life. 
It was his wealth which provided him with power, significance, and status. It became the god of his life, and it determined his values, his priorities, and his ambitions. And Jesus called him to exchange it for following him as a disciple in the kingdom of heaven. And this morning, Jesus knows my heart and yours, and he knows if there is something other than himself sitting on the throne of our heart that also needs to be challenged in terms of our priorities. This young man's turning away is tragic. It becomes a powerful illustration, even in our own lives, of why we need to keep short accounts of what is ruling our lives. Even Christians can misplace their allegiance. So each person has to be honest with himself to identify and know what is the treasure of their heart. This word perfect in our text is actually a fairly common word in the Old Testament. And to translate that word, what you would come up with is undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience. Undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience. That's what it means to be perfect. That's what it means to be perfect. And Jesus says to this young man, if you want to be perfect, undivided loyalty, full-hearted obedience. Of course, the young man couldn't face that. He was willing to discipline himself to observe all the outward stipulations of the law and even perform works beyond the call of duty. But because of his wealth, he had a divided heart. His possessions were competing with God. And what Jesus demands as a condition for eternal life is absolute radical discipleship, which includes surrender of self. As has been said, either he is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. I could ask Mo to come up and sit on this chair with me together, but I think both, all of you can figure out already that that wouldn't be a good idea. We don't both fit on that chair. It's either him or me. Either Jesus is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. Keeping individual commandments is no substitute for our readiness for self-surrender to the absolute claim of God as our Lord and Master. And absolute allegiance to Him with the humility of a child is essential to salvation. I don't personally believe that Jesus meant for a two-tier approach to salvation, meaning that you can accept Him as your Savior, and if you're really radical, then you accept Him as your Lord as well. I think that he meant for these two to go together. It's not either or, it's both and. The condition Jesus imposes on the young man not only reveals his attachment to money, but shows that all his formal compliance with the law is worthless because none of it entails absolute self-surrender. Material riches are not a guarantee that God is pleased with a man nor does having them imply exclusion from God's kingdom. That's not the point. Abraham was a very wealthy man, yet he was a man of great faith. It can be good to possess wealth if wealth does not possess you. Our possessions are a spiritual issue, an indicator of our spiritual condition. We need to eliminate distractions, whatever they are, and keep on focusing on obedience to Christ and his will in our lives. 
It is said that an addiction disrupts and displaces God as the center of our lives. And the Bible has a word for this. It's called idolatry. According to Scripture, anything we turn to for our primary source of meaning and validation apart from God is an idol. It really doesn't matter what it is. Well, Jesus responds to this young man and he follows it up with teaching to the disciples about discipleship in verse 23 to 26. And I've called it the hard road of discipleship. It's possible that Jesus' intention here is to lighten the mood with what looks like a ridiculous mental image. Maybe because he wants to shock the crowd into seeing that even the absurdly impossible is possible with God. I have tried with shaky fingers to put a piece of thread through the eye of a needle and missed it multiple times. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Can you imagine trying to push a camel through the eye of a needle? That's maybe a tad more difficult. The disciples are shocked at Jesus' statement about the difficulty of wealthy people entering the kingdom of God because wealth was often equated with divine favor. And yet the tragedy of the rich young ruler is that he preferred the treasures of earth to the treasures of heaven. And that prevented him from exchanging the God of his life for discipleship to Jesus. We all face daily challenges in our growth as disciples. And Jesus calls us to be honest about what rules our lives, about what's sitting in that chair. It could be a drug addiction or a boyfriend. It could be the pursuit of a PhD. It could be the acceptance and respect of our peers or an insatiable need for pleasure or all of the toys that life offers. The joys, securities, and comforts these pursuits temporarily offer may not appear to be bad, but they are when serving self becomes the primary motive. They can all be good, in a sense, other than, of course, drug addiction. They can all be good, unless they become the primary motive. Riches, if they are under our feet, are stepping stones, but upon our backs they're a curse. There's a difference. Although our text does not actually discuss community uh, overtly as such, it is one of the most essential needs of God's people and the context in which discipleship happens. Biblical community overcomes individualism by connecting people to a common purpose. It overcomes the problem of isolation by connecting people to a common place. And it also overcomes the problem of consumerism by connecting people to a common stewardship of possessions. Here's my piece of advice. Find a church where you can fit in and commit. Otherwise, who will encourage you to eat your vegetables? You see, if I float around from place to place to make sure that I only hear what I want to hear, nobody's making me eat my vegetables. And you and I both know that sometimes it's important to eat our vegetables. I hope Gord Penner's listening. He hates vegetables. <laughs> Discipleship happens best in the context of a serving community that loves God and neighbor. Well, Peter responds to this question, verse 27 to 29, 
asking about rewards. He wants to know, do we have rewards? And Peter's self-seeking for rewards sets up the parable in chapter 20 that follows our text. And it's actually a bit of a subtle rebuke to the attitude of self-seeking. Peter flaunts the sacrifice that he and the other disciples have made to follow Jesus. And he boldly asks, what then will there be for us? Oh, poor me, look at how I've sacrificed. What's in it for me? His question actually reveals the wrong motive. He's driven to serving Jesus and the kingdom of heaven with a primary purpose of receiving rewards and gaining personal prominence. That's not why we do it. And Jesus responds and says, whatever good things they had forsaken for Christ would re be returned to them a hundredfold. And, and I'm not bragging, but I'm here to tell you that I've experienced that. Yep. I'm going to get emotional. I've experienced the increase of family by going to the mission field. I have family in Nicaragua, in Chihuahua, in Guadalajara. I have family in Texas, in Ontario. You, you get my point. Uh, my life has been enriched. Also family here. You're, you're my family. I, I have not made sacrifices. I've not made sacrifices. In other words, to the disciples, Jesus is saying that they were not making sacrifices, they were making investments. I didn't realize that I was making investments. But that's what it is. We sacrifice today, generosity, and we will be rewarded tomorrow. Finally, verse 30. Thank you for reading that verse, uh, Ethan. I think it kind of wraps this all together. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Wow, how does that fit? In God's kingdom, status and position are not determined by power, possessions, or prestige. They are determined by selfless service of others. That's truly an upside-down kingdom. At a human level, it seems counterintuitive. But you and I need to have Christ on the throne of our lives in every way. I read a quote by Joy Davidman that says, We sometimes come to God not because we love him best, but because we love our possessions best. We ask Christ to save Western civilization without asking ourselves whether it is a civilization that Christ would want to save. We pray too often not to do God's will, but to enlist God's assistance in maintaining our continually increasing consumption. And yet, though Christ promised that God would feed us, he never promised that God would stuff us to bursting. So here is the, uh, here's the question that I hope you take with you this morning. What rules our lives? What rules your life? Who or what is seated in that chair? What must be dethroned as that which is keeping you or I from experiencing freedom and fullness in life? Being a disciple of Jesus is for those who have counted the cost and want real life, eternal life. Received from the Savior who came to seek and to save that which was lost and who lovingly, persistently transforms us into his image. These are tough words if we fear and resist them, but they are words of hope, promise, peace, and joy if we are tired of ruling our lives ourselves. Let's pray and then I'm going to ask Mo and Geraldine to come up and we're going to see if there are some questions or comments for us this morning.
Heavenly Father, this is not a great question that we really like or want. But it is a question that needs to be asked. And each of us this morning need to ask it. What needs to be dethroned in my life so that you have the place that belongs to you? And I recognize that that decision can't be made once and forever, but that has to be a continual affirmation of your place of primacy in my life. So Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would help us to uh, ascertain that and then also to commit to following you and allowing you the place that is rightfully yours in each of our lives. And we thank you that by God's grace, you are able to do that in each and every heart and life. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll maybe use this one. Okay, the first question is this. Uh, it's actually just a comment. We assume that the young man did not change his life. All we know is that he walked away sad. He was convicted, and now he had to process this truth. Uh, this can take time. And I was wondering. I was wondering when I heard that. I was like, um, Do we at times? Um, not give enough value to the idea that people have been in a place where they've sometimes when we encounter Jesus we have to it becomes significant for us but but it, it only becomes significant after we've taken some time to think about it and take some time to work on it do we do we have an expectation of when people encounter Jesus that everything will be changed immediately do we do we kind of carry that within the church i'm wondering does that does that make sense? Like, like are we are we are we pushing towards instant response to to the goodness of Jesus? <laughs> I don't know if I could say one way or another, honestly. I, I don't I don't feel like they, I personally have that expectation, but I'm not I am not the church. I'm just one person. So is is there a is there a value that we aren't seeing to walking away from a situation where, where we felt convicted and taking time to, you know, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I think what would help here is to recognize that for some people, uh, salvation is a radical coming, moving in this direction, then radically having an encounter and going this way. For other people, it's a number of events on, like turning, you know, like taking a set of super bees and trying to turn around. It, it actually is a number of different things that actually are part of that turn. Uh, so I would agree that, that God doesn't give up on anybody right away, and neither should we. Uh, they're, they're, and some of us are crockpot thinkers. I, I need to put it in my crockpot and, and hash it through for a while. So the text doesn't tell us whether this young man ever made a decision for Christ, whether he ever made a change. The text just talks about this incident and what happened at the moment. Uh, and for the teaching purpose of the author, uh, he makes the point, uh, but doesn't actually fill in 
if something else changed in this guy's life later. And I guess we could also say, like, um, to not necessarily put that expectation on ourselves. It's like when I have conversations with people about the Lord, when I witness to people, I don't, I don't have to turn the ship right around, you know. You know um, that, that's something that's been on my mind a little bit as I've been <laughs> trying to have productive uh, conversations on Facebook and things like that. So it's like there's no need to try to win them over to your side. You can just have a good conversation and, and take that pressure off yourself. Okay, we're going to keep working through here. I, I love this because this is, uh, this is a, a real and honest response. Uh, for me, having grown up in the church, the idea of who or what is on the throne of my life, question, like in quotations, is kind of a cliche that has little meaning. How do I know what or who is on the throne? Like, how do I practically know who or what is on the throne of my life? Well, Gerilyn, why don't you answer that one? <laughs> That's actually my question. Oh. <laughs> so I can, I can elaborate, I guess, a little bit. It's like one of those things where, like, people have tried it over the years. Like, you know, when I, I'm 31 now, and so I've been in the church all my life and going to, like, Abundant Springs, and they always talk about, like, well, how are you spending all your time? Like, well, I have two jobs. I, I work all the time. Um, well, how do you spend all your money? Well, on housing and food uh, and gas. Um, you know, <laughs> and so it's like, well, how do I, how do I know, like, who, who's actually on the throne of my life? Practically, not just talking in theory, but like, when I get up in the morning from the, to the time that I go to bed, like, how do I know that that time is spent with God on the throne of my life? Uh, I don't know that a pat answer is going to work for everyone, but I would say that some introspection in terms of what my priorities are, what gets most of my attention, what, gets, what do I think about most, what, what is most important to me. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, EMC churches are notorious for, for uh, printing an annual report, uh, which includes a financial statement, and then putting it into, the, into display in the foyer. And I've sometimes walked into a church, invited to preach, and I pull up their report. I can't read the whole report. I just flip to the financial statement. And you can say that you're missional till the cows come home, but your financial statement might say something entirely different. You see what I'm saying? In other words, your priorities are reflected by your financial statement in, the, in, in one sense, right, as a church. So if we spend all of our money on padding the pew and painting, and have nothing left for ministry, that would suggest a certain priority. Okay, so now, now I have to do that with my own personal life. What, what's most important to me, and how does that show itself, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not always easy to, to determine, right? It's a process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you said, and I, um, the, I think the quote was maybe a little bit different, but it was either Jesus is Lord of all or, or of none. You had a- It's not Lord at all. Or Lord at all, is that what it is? Okay, so either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Right. Can we ever get to a place here on earth where Jesus actually is Lord of all in all areas of our life? How does God's grace fit into this part of the Christian experience? I actually had the same question when I heard you say that. I'm like, wait a second. Like, that's, that's great in theory, but like, does anyone ever actually know <laughs> that God is Lord of everything? Like, don't you yeah. ever like... It seems like every month is like, oh, oh yes, that belongs to you too. Okay, you take that. All right. And then the next month it's like, oh, you know, you're not giving me control over all of that, right? <gasps> oh, yes, you're right. Okay, take that too. You know, it seems like yeah. it's a constant, like, 
Like, you, oh yes, you're lord of that too. Oh right, yeah, you're lord of that too. Take that. Or maybe like, mm, okay, okay, fine. You know. You know, this is a little bit like singing I surrender all. Mm-hmm. Remember the hymn? How many of us can actually sing that in total truthfulness? Uh, see, uh, what we're singing is a desire, a wish, knowing full well that we actually never get to the place where it's a statement of reality, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's a target. And, and I would say here too, on this side of heaven, none of us is going to be fully 100% sanctified where we can say Jesus is Lord of every single aspect of my life going forward. It's, it's always a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here we have a couple more questions, so I'm going to okay. keep going. Salvation is not a two-tier system. Uh, you can't take Jesus as your Savior without also taking him as your Lord. Awesome. Okay, so that, I think that's an affirmation. The question that comes out of it is, how does this affect our evangelism and the good news? How does the fact that, and so it's uh, my understanding is the idea that, that part, of, part of bringing the good news to others is having them embrace him as Lord of their life, not just not just embracing salvation. Does, how does that change the way that we do evangelism? Mm, that's a good question. I, the first thing that comes to mind is that we can't lose sight of the fact that we are asking people sometimes for quite a big sacrifice. Um, let's say they come from a different religion. Um, if we are asking them for, 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 for not only to be saved, but to get, take Christ as, as their Lord, does that mean that they're going to have some sort of break with their family or with their, their current faith community and their support system. I think about, um, does this mean we're going to be asking people to give up romantic relationships, for instance, or um, activities that they love? And it's not like we're, gonna, we're asking them, when you come into the church, you must immediately stop smoking or something like that. You know, that, that's not that simple. But like... It, Eventually, they may have to get there, right? Uh, I don't know why I paid smoking as an example, but it <laughs> just came what came to mind. Um, yeah, that there's going to be actual cost to it, and so hopefully that allows us to be a bit more sensitive to their particular scenario and needs. The the person who sent in the question, I, I think, kind of answered it. Um, being perfect is not living sinless, but walking in repentance and humility when we do sin. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think um, maybe the the emphasis on uh, on repentance and humility is a is a good way for us to look at the idea of how do we invite people into relationship with Christ. Um, I think the caution raised by that question is also that you and I don't peddle cheap grace, meaning that you don't tell someone, raise your hand and give mental assent to four spiritual laws and you're in, and then you can carry on doing what you want to do. We have to be honest with people and say, actually, this is what this means to commit to Christ. To accept him as your savior also means to accept him as your Lord. And, and so, yeah, there, there might be sacrifices involved here. Yeah. <laughs> How about this? This is Gord Penner. Totally agree with your comment on the need to find church, to find a church and commit. Still not convinced about the need for vegetables as such a, a high value. <laughs> God bless you for your teaching <laughs> on the body of Christ. 
So be, Did, beware, your sins, will, this beware your sins will find you out, I guess. Is the, uh, I'll have uh, to have a conversation with him about whether he's had a falling out with his church. Yeah, no, no, no. no, no. I'll, and I'll invite him to my course, How to Sneak Vegetables into Everyday Dishes and not notice they're there. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Jesse. <laughs> That's perfect. Jesse just, for those of you who didn't hear that, Jesse just said that she had texted Gord to let him know. Hey, I, I think one of the things as we look at this is, is to realize that we are all on, um, as followers of Jesus, we are all moving towards the perspective of, of holiness. Hence the word enter. We're, we're entering Journey. into that stream of, yeah. and, and it's not something that we need, um, that we hold with, a, with an expectation for the, rest of the, for the rest of our congregation or for the rest of, that everyone is going to be at this place. Right. What we're asking for and what we're encouraging is to, is to continue that movement towards Christ and to, towards what he's calling us to. And, and in the context of community, that's how discipleship happens. We're all walking together in a similar direction. Some of us at a different pace, some of us further behind or ahead, but we're walking together in the same direction. Awesome.